Welcome to the Farm Commons Podcast, where we make farm law accessible and actionable for sustainable farmers and ranchers, as well as their networks of support. I'm Eva. And I'm Kate. In each episode, we explore real legal issues faced on farms every day, providing key knowledge and tangible solutions to help you grow a thriving agricultural business. From managing liability to navigating tough conversations with landlords and neighbors, we've got your back. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Farm Commons podcast. Summertime is here and folks are enjoying recreational activities outside and farms can be a really desirable location with ponds for fishing, trails for hiking, and open fields that appeal to hunters as well as campers. There's also friends who may call asking to recreate on the farm. So several farmers who have fielded these requests have come to us with their risk management hat on asking, what are the legal risks if they get injured and how can I proactively manage them? So here with me is Rachel to answer this in-season question. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Eva. Hi, everybody. And well, yeah, as the saying goes, there's a season for everything. And I mean, summertime, definitely the season for recreation. Yeah, for sure. Top three uses that we are seeing farm landowners share with others on their properties are nature recreation, like letting their CSA members onto the farm for bird watching and hiking or nature walks and also hunting, access for friends and family that's free or paid. And lastly, foraging by individuals in the community. I think these sound like wonderful uses. Um, I, I, I've i taken up a, a, a recent love of foraging. Well, I guess I did it as a kid too. Maybe, maybe in my young adulthood, I took a little hiatus, but I'm back and I'm teaching my kids how to, uh, how to forage. But, you know, being an attorney and working in risk management, of course, when I see my kids like lean over, you know, a, a rocky um, knoll to try to get some some service berries, of course, I'm I'm seeing risk. I'm seeing injury. I know what can happen if that rock is a little wet. And, you know, um, we're out there traipsing through the woods. I know farmers see those risks as well. Um, and the good news is there are ways to manage those risks. It helps to start by envisioning, you know, worst case scenarios, but we don't need to let that stop us. Even though folks can injure themselves falling and getting stung and, you know, hunters can even shoot themselves accidentally or others, foragers, you know, all kinds of things can happen or even things like, you know, harvesting bad product, eating it, getting sick. Real woes, they can and do happen. Yeah. Oh, I'm feeling anxious and a and a bit worried just thinking of all these uh, risks because they definitely can happen. Anything can happen out in the wild, even if it's like a cultivated wild out on the farm. Uh, so how can farmers manage the risk of injuries is the, the question we're, we're going to explore in this episode. And we've got two strategies for you, listeners, that are proactive and designed to prevent bad things from happening. And they also doubly function by giving you a defense if those bad things do come to pass. So Rachel, can you tee them up for us? Let's do it. Let's do it. 
And I, I love this approach we take to risk. Let's not dwell on the bad things that could happen. Let's move right away to what we can do to manage those risks because we don't want to deny anyone the opportunity for this kind of recreation. And for farmers, you know, we don't want to deny you the opportunity for some income and increased community stake in your farm. We just have to manage risk. The first thing we can do to manage these risks is agree to rules in writing. So think of this legally like memorializing the terms of use for the property. And the second, everyone gets insurance. Now there's more behind these two and that's what I'm eager to talk with you about, Eva. But those are the basics in plain plain language. Yeah, no, I think that those, those are great plain language basics. Um, and I think a natural... You know, follow-up question here that listeners may have is, um, you know, when we get things in writing and we're we're talking about what we're writing down, um, you know, what kind of things do we need to agree to? What kind of rules do we need to think about making? Excellent. Okay. So, you know, we've got a list. It's, it's on the long side. Not too long. It's perfect for a podcast, but um, let's split it in half, Eva. I'll take the first five points that people should cover in this kind of agreement, and you take the second half? Yeah, sure. Sounds good. Okay. <laughs> well, excellent. So I get the easy ones, of course, right at the top. Number one, when can these recreators go to the property? Anytime? And, you know, naturally you might say, well, daytime, but let's go deeper. Do they need to ask first? Can they just go? Are there times of year that are off limits, like maybe when you're going to be hunting? What can your recreators do when they are on the property? And, you know, this is this is your, your opportunity to spell out what activities are specifically allowed. Like, you may camp, you may hike, but only on these specific trails. And also to further reinforce those restrictions. Don't climb trees, stay away from the ponds, don't cut anything down. All of that good stuff. If you want them to stay out of certain view ranges so that you don't see them, you can specify that. Number three, detail what facilities are available so that your um, your recreationalists can be prepared for what you've got. Do you have restrooms, porta potty, any access? Well, how about water? Do folks have to bring that in. What about things like trail cameras? Do you have those up? And does that create concerns for you or for your um, your recreators? What about trash management? Do you have trash cans? Is this a pack in, pack out? Is there camping? Where? All that good stuff. Number four, what vehicles can be used on the property? A lot of times recreation does come with trying to get around a little faster. So maybe folks are thinking ATVs or side-by-sides or camper vans or whatever all else. So make sure to specify that. And number five is their friends and their family. Who can they bring? How many people are allowed at a time? Once you start thinking in those terms, you can really imagine, oh, right, okay, I see how some clarity is necessary here because I have a vision about what recreation is gonna look like. Let's make sure that your recreationalist shares that vision. Absolutely. Thanks for the rundown on those first five points to cover, rules to cover. I mean, it's not really a rule until you talk about it and you write it down, but those are definitely the first first five that we recommend exploring. And honestly, Rachel, as you were talking about it, it makes me want to go on a camping trip, <laughs> just thinking about all of the logistics to, to plan a trip and get outside. 
but as a trail runner myself, that piece about facilities really speaks to me because whenever I'm getting out to a trailhead um, and I'm planning to spend, you know, several hours outside, I always want to know if there are bathrooms and where the piped water sources are, especially, you know, on hot summer days. So yeah, I appreciate those rules. <laughs> but moving on to the final four, um, next up we've got alcohol consumption. So can people drink on the property? Can they drink alcohol? Is that allowed? And to answer this question, you'll want to consider your risk tolerance for people imbibing while on your property. Um, really, you know, taking into account driving on and off, um, proximity to buildings, you know, just imagining, you know, what all could happen if alcohol is mixed into the equation and making a decision on whether or not that is allowed. And then money. Is there a cost for use of the property? If so, what is that cost? How is it collected? Is it cash? Do they drop it into a box? Do they pay online? Is there a check that they mail? And when does that need to be paid? And then number eight is how long is access to the, to the property, to the farmland granted? Is it for a year, a portion of the year, or one time only? And they have to, you know, ask again, request again to return. And lastly, what systems on the property do visitors need to be aware of, such as gates that need to stay closed, you know, gates that visitors may need to pass through but then need to make sure are closed behind them, or gates that need to permanently stay closed because perhaps there's livestock in that area or livestock needs to not get into that area or wildlife could get in. Um, and then also facility issues. Um, are there systems with bathrooms, for example, that people need to adhere to, like bring your own toilet paper, don't flush down toilet paper, please use the sawdust for the compost toilet, etc. There's also electricity and electric fencing. Visitors will probably need to be aware of those if those are present, as well as water pumps, turning those on and off when you're on the property, um, or spraying you know, our chemicals being sprayed on the property, you know, letting, letting visitors know about that. And even irrigation, you know, not just spraying chemicals, but spraying water um, for, for crops and other agricultural uses. Um, visitors may need to be aware of that. And really this, this last bit about being aware of systems that are in place on the farm can really make a big difference to a visitor's experience. Um, in Texas, actually, there was a case that was recent where a recreator had signed up for a horseback ride on a ranch that hosted these rides. And while going along, um, the recreator was riding the horse, uh, they passed a sprinkler system that turned on and it spooked the horse to the point that the rider fell off, she broke her wrist and sued the ranch resort afterwards for her injuries claiming that the owners were negligent and that she was an invitee. Yeah, interesting case. Interesting case. I heard about that one. And while the incident wasn't on, you know, like a farm proper, the kind of farms that we serve that, you know, grow vegetables and raise animals for food, um, there is, there's still a lesson in there that applies to all landowners. If you're inviting guests onto your property to recreate, when injuries happen, you know, the real, the, the truth is farmers can be sued by that person or their private health insurance company that might actually be driving the bus. So of course, the next thing farmers think of is, well, geez, am I going to be responsible for this? 
The answer is always the same, if a little disappointing. It depends. It depends. We're not sure. But the good news is we don't have to get into it. And this brings us to our second strategy, Eva. Insurance. The landowner, you, the farmer, the rancher, you need insurance. Insurance gives you a defense. Someone who will go to bat for you and say, look, this farmer isn't responsible. So that's not actually something you have to figure out beforehand if you get insurance. For sure, Rachel. It's so true. Um, Insurance, if you've been around us for a while, you hear Farm Commons talk about insurance again and again. Farmers need insurance to protect their business interests, and the type of insurance you need depends on the activities happening on your property. Uh, And in this case, we're we're talking about recreation. So ask your insurance agent. Give them a call if you you have an agent, if you know one, um, and ask about coverage. And if you don't have an agent that you're working with right now, you know, ask ask peers, especially farm peers, um, farm businesses who have recreators coming onto their property because there's a good chance that they may know an agent um, who can help you get a similar type of coverage for similar activities. But before going down that path, um, we do want you to know that there is usually coverage provided for visitors to the property through homeowner's insurance and also farm owner's insurance, except if you charge those visitors for access. Right, right. Great point. Once you start taking in money for the recreational activity, and no, that doesn't mean turning a profit, just means taking in money. That has become a business endeavor. And so then that requires commercial coverage. So if that is your situation and you are taking in some money in return for these opportunities, get that call on the books with your insurance agent to talk about it. You can, you can use the parameters for your written agreement as a basis for discussion with your agent so that they can understand like what's going on and what is being allowed and where. That's going to be really helpful for your insurance agent so that they can more accurately quote um, coverage for you based on the actual risks that are going to be incurred here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so far we've got farmer landowners who are allowing friends and family onto their property for free who can generally rely on homeowner's insurance or farm owner's insurance to cover them for the risk of injuries. We've also addressed folks who are charging for recreation that need to look into a commercial line of coverage, um, which was what you're alluding to, Rachel. And I think another question that we maybe want to address is, what about instances where a farmer is allowing a friend to use their land? Um, And that friend has some kind of business. You know, maybe they're giving plant identification tours or they have a foraging business and they want to access the property for their business. Um, What kind of coverage do those folks need? Yeah, yeah, this is a good scenario. So now we really have a business to business relationship. I'm the the farmer ranch operator and my my friend has a foraging business. And so together that's, we're two commercial operators. Those commercial operators on the property also need insurance. They have control over how they're giving these tours or where they're letting folks forage or guiding them or what they're telling them. And because they make money from that endeavor, even if it's not profit, they're taking in money, they have a business interest that they need to protect. Yeah, that makes sense, Rachel. 
And for you foragers out there, if you are interested in learning more about protecting your revenue, your business interest from wild forage foods, check out episode 50 of the Farm Commons podcast that will link in the show notes. In that episode, we get into various ways that you can protect your business through insurance, sales agreements, and other strategies. Uh, But back to managing the risk of injuries to visitors to your land, um, including business visitors. The landowner needs insurance. Commercial visitors need insurance. Um, But that makes me think, Rachel, you know, just if we're thinking about the guest list of people, (laughs) what about the non-commercial visitor? You know, my best friend from school or my aunt who wants to come and run trails with me or alone or bird watch. Do they need insurance? Yeah, I love that phrase. Let's call them non-commercial individuals, friends, relatives. No, those folks don't need insurance because they are not exposed to liability for anything. And this this can be a little a little jarring since doesn't it seem like everybody is responsible for everything? Ooh, not quite. Okay, so to explain, certainly they are exposed to risk of injury. They could injure someone else in their party too, but injury isn't exactly the same as liability. We can cause someone to be injured without being legally liable and thus needing insurance. Like, let's take an example that is frequent in my life. Let's say I'm teaching my kid to ride a bike in my driveway, or I'm taking them out to um, forage for raspberry leaves for tea. I can't go get insurance for the fact that I might injure my kid while teaching them to ride their bike in the driveway, or, you know, if they break their leg while we're out foraging. But if I start teaching lots of neighbor kids in my driveway, or start hosting lessons for neighbor kids for how to ride bikes or forage for tea, well, yeah, now I can get into trouble. I can be liable for those injuries. And the legal technique we're talking about here is something called the duty of care. Once I start holding myself out in the community as someone who has ability or skills, hey, I'll teach your kid to ride a bike. Or if I start charging for that, foraging lessons for all the neighborhood kids. The act of doing that creates a legal duty and that creates liability. So I don't have this legal duty to like my own children in the same way, or even my, you know, nephews or, or folks to whom I'm related, my friends. But once I start holding myself out in the community as someone who's capable of doing this, that does create different liability. And then we do need to start talking insurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, Rachel. I'm, I'm just sitting here imagining you with like circles of children in your driveway riding their bikes around cones, and then afterwards you have tea time. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Raspberry tea time. (laughs) Yeah, that's so sweet. Um, I think it's a promising business model. (laughs) Right, right. Let's see if I get bored enough, right? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) But yeah, if you start doing it commercially, like we're talking about, um, you need insurance. And so let's, let's walk through how this happens, practically speaking. If I'm the landowner and I just tell the commercial individual, um, hey, I need you to get insurance before you come onto my property. Can I do this? Totally. Totally. Yeah. And use the written agreement, right? You have a written agreement, right? To require your commercial visitors to carry insurance. So it's, you know, 
something simple, you just write in, hey, get me a certificate of insurance as part of the agreement, you know, when that thing is signed. Then you're covering your bases. Super. That's a great tip. Um, And on the subject of written agreements, some folks might be wondering about liability waivers. Can this written agreement include a liability waiver where, let's say, for example, it states that um, you as the visitor to the property can use the pond for swimming, but if you drown, it's your fault? Anything is possible. Yes, it's possible. (laughs) But don't do it on your own. If you want that kind of protection, see an attorney. That's that's the only way to do it. I would not recommend going online, getting a template or using your neighbor's um, thing. You need something that's written for you. You mentioned ponds and waterways. Yes, absolutely in that case. Or if you're a horse facility or if you have equipment where people might get injured, you want to see an attorney. And do think about creating that liability waiver tailored exactly to those activities and the laws in your state. Yep, got it. So for folks who don't want a liability waiver, but they do want to create a written agreement, um, they might be wondering, is there a name for this kind of agreement, especially if, you know, they're wanting to do some research and maybe look at some examples, you know, what, what are they looking for here? Yeah, we're getting a little weedy once we start to name things and assign legal titles to them, but, but let's do it. So, um, dear listener, sorry about a little bit of legal weeds here, it can go through them with us. Basically, um, when we're agreeing to some rules in writing about how someone can use a piece of property, we're going to start out with a license. A license gives, you know, um, my Auntie Jill permission, but it's not exclusive. I might also give Uncle Bob and, um, you know, my friend permission. Everybody gets permission. That's a license. If I want to create something exclusive, like only Uncle Joe gets to hunt, now we start to call that a lease. Doesn't it, it leases are when that person, um, you know, has exclusive access. Like if you lease a house, you're not going to lease it to multiple people. They get the only use of that house. It doesn't really matter, though. If it's a lease or a license, put the rules in writing. So that's a nice way to think about it. Usually leases go with money. So once you start trading, trading money, we're usually going to start to call this a lease. It's usually going to be exclusive. Um Legally speaking, a lease can be harder to end, whereas a license can be quicker to terminate. Um, but it does depend on the on the specific rules that the individuals agree to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense, Rachel. Um, yeah, and on the note of like the license being a bit more flexible, uh, I was just out in town the other day and went to a parking deck and we just paid to park and we got our ticket and I just happened to look at the back of the ticket for the, I guess the first time in my life. And it said it was a license. It was like, this license enables you to park in this parking deck and we are not liable as the parking deck for anything that might be damaged or stolen from your vehicle. And you agree to the terms by taking this ticket and paying. Um, And so if you think about it, like there's so many people who have a license to park in the parking deck, but maybe for the people who want to be fancy and get a lease to park in the one spot that they will always park in. Um, those come usually with a bigger price tag, more terms, etc. So um, yeah, we can think about a lease being a bit more flexible. Love it. That's a great example. I don't think I've ever read the back of a parking ticket. Either. <laughs> I, should, okay. I should see what it says. 
<laughs> yeah, it just took me like three decades. <laughs> right. <laughs> Funny. Right. Okay. Well, before we wrap up, we got one more thing to talk about. And this comes up surprisingly a lot. Trespassers. So folks come onto your land without any permission to be there, without any right to be there, no lease, no license. Or it could be a person who has a lease or a license to use the land, but is not abiding by the terms. They're on the land too early in the morning, too late in the day, out of season, whatever the case may be. So, you know, that's that's the thing that happens and we hear about it. Yeah, so what would you say are top options for managing those unwanted visitors who crop up on the land? Totally. Couple of ideas. They're not going to be the most um, most satisfying, but these are probably the best practices that we can follow. The first, of course, is to simply ask the person or people to leave. So just notify them that they are um, um, not um, allowed on the land or that they might be allowed, but they're breaking the rules and that's making it unallowed. So just talk to them. Um, Second, though, you can also choose to call on our public resources to enforce your private property rights. And uh, so, yeah, that means putting in a call to the police or sheriff to say, look, I have a trespasser. Can you assist me in, um, in enforcing my private property rights? The local authorities may be able to assist depending on other situations that they might be managing. You know how it is. They're going to they're gonna triage requests for help. And if someone else has a, you know, a five alarm fire, they might not have time for your trespasser. But um, that is um, also a strategy that you can use if simply asking them to leave or come into compliance doesn't work. Yeah, thanks for those helpful reminders, Rachel, of boundary keeping, you know, the ability that we have to say no. Um, and also the reminder about local resources um, and the strains, the various strains that could be put on local resources, such as um, enforcement authorities, depending on what all is going on. So, yeah, thanks for that. And for all you listeners out there, thank you for sticking around to explore um, land use with regards to recreational liability with us. Uh, if you will be having recreators out to your land this summer or anytime really, remember the best practice is to get a written agreement in place between the farm landowner and the recreationalist where you agree to specific insurance and risk management strategies. Love it. And everyone also loves a doc, a, a, like a template and a model. So if you want support like that and you're looking for a model, check out what our colleagues at Texas A&M um, AgriLife Extension have produced. We have some great models. We'll link them in the show notes. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, y'all. Until next time. We're so glad you joined us for this episode of the Farm Commons podcast. If you are looking for more resources on your burning farm law questions, visit our website at farmcommons.org for a variety of workshops, guides, checklists, tutorials, and more. You can also email your questions and comments to info at farmcommons.org. Stay tuned for our next episode, and until then, keep growing.